This morning's sermon is on the really rather seemingly simple subject of falling in love. Well, more specifically, really, I guess, if you love someone, how do you get them to fall madly, deeply, head over heels in love with you? Mary, why are you laughing at Chris? It's a serious business, and we'll see in a few days' time on Valentine's Day one possible answer to this problem. You can throw money at it. Lots of money. Ten billion pounds will be spent on February the 14th on cards, on chocolate, on dining out, and on flowers. 61% of men will will buy their partner flowers on Valentine's Day. 15% of women will buy themselves flowers on Valentine's Day. 53% of what I shall loosely call ladies say that if they're not bought a gift at all, they would leave their loved one or partner on Valentine's Day. Perhaps more romantically, 10% of all engagements, 400,000 engagements and weddings on a single day, 11,000 conceptions, 196 million roses, enough to circle the earth three and a half times. 180 million greetings cards are exchanged, second only to Christmas Day. Teachers receive the most cards, followed by children, then mothers, wives, sweethearts, and pets, confirming once and for all my suspicion that husbands are lower on the pecking order than the family dog. (laughs) On Valentine's Day, if you're really trying to impress someone, you probably need to try a little harder than just a card and some chocolates. You should book, perhaps, a table for two at the finest restaurant in Linfield. You should order what I find quaintly biblical, the quail's egg appetizer. Or slightly less kosher, perhaps, dine on oysters and champagne, on lobsters and caviar. Gentlemen, what you definitely should do is to ask your date about her day and her life. And then, and this bit is critical, you should listen carefully. Laugh often, but in the right places and give of yourself generously and then and only then may the flame of love burn brightly such that many years later when you have been long married valentine's day can be a simpler humbler affair a fish finger sandwich perhaps (laughs) enjoyed in the comfort of your own home just sitting together perhaps in awkward silence watching eastenders or consuming together the chocolate confectionery purchased from a petrol station forecourt on the way home. But even all of that, and we will come back to that later, sounds deeply and hopelessly romantic when compared to God's recommended strategy for courtship in Hosea 2, verse 14. Would you turn quickly to page 901? I'm testing your your page flicking abilities to the very edge this morning. Hosea 2, verse 14, it's on page 901 of the Pew Bibles. God is speaking. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. If I'm honest, the desert is not the first place that I think of for a romantic venue. Even if you carry one of those plastic-backed blankets and some Factor 100 sunscreen in your car... There's no music or ambience, it's just an absolute overbearing silence. There's no food or water, just a dry, bitter dust that covers everything. It is baking murderously hot by day 
and dangerously freezing cold by night, with only shifting sand dunes all around for mile upon mile upon mile, you will soon be disoriented and hopelessly lost. So this then is no ordinary tale. This isn't a safe Duke of Edinburgh's award trip. This is one of the most dangerous and inhospitable places on earth, and yet God clearly says, therefore, I am now going to allure her, that is to allure Israel, his people, to woo Israel. Actually, the word he uses is sexual, to seduce Israel. God wants to get Israel to fall in love with him again. For this, he must lead her into the desert, and there he can speak tenderly to her. You see, Hosea is the story of Israel, but it's told through a tale of a husband, jealous for the affections of his adulterous wife. This is the story of one and two kings. It's also the background to one and two chronicles, to one and two Samuel. It's the mood music to Hosea, to Numbers, to Deuteronomy, and it's the very heart of the story that we're looking at over this series, the book of Exodus. It is a tale of worship and restoration, of forgiveness followed again and again and again by idolatry. She decked herself with rings and jewellery and went after her lovers, but me she forgot, declares the Lord. Therefore... I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her there. God's unrequited love for Israel will only be returned if he leads her from her idols into the desert. A place where they have only each other. He doesn't lead Israel into the desert for suffering or punishment or loneliness. For God doesn't lead us into the desert to be alone but that we might meet with him there. He doesn't lead us into the desert so that we will become lost, but so that he can guide us home. He doesn't lead us into the desert so that we become dependent on him, but that his abundance may be made known. This, then, is the story of Exodus, and the desert into which God longs to lead his people and will occasionally lead you and me on our journey of faith. The title of the sermon this morning is from our series, God in Action, the God who guides. In this case, the God who guides his people into and then through the desert and the wilderness, navigating them safely to the banks of the Jordan and the land that he has promised them. It so happens that over this winter period, I'm studying navigation. This genuinely is the Royal Yachting Association Navigation Handbook. This is officially the book that you need if you want to buy yourself a Sunseeker yacht and you don't want to keep crashing into France. I would like to share with you something from page seven. Don't worry, the first six pages are really rather simple. They cover the basics that you need to know about yachting, which are this. One, how to tie a knot, and two, how to pour a decent gin and tonic. Most yachtists give up after page six, but you look like an advanced crowd. So this genuinely is page seven of the Royal Yachting Association Navigation Handbook. Note the handy tip here to the right-hand corner that the Earth is in fact a sphere. Yes, you're only on page seven, but you already know more about navigation than Columbus. I apologise for the advanced language, but here we go. The fundamentals of navigation. You usually need to know where you are. You almost always need to know where you're trying to get to. 
And you definitely need to know where the hazards are that you are trying to avoid. The fundamentals of navigation. You usually need to know where you are. You almost always need to know where you're trying to get to. And you definitely need to know where the hazards are that you're trying to avoid. So, how was it that Israel was able to navigate in the desert? A place with no landmarks. They had no navigation aids or beacons. They had no sat-nav or tom-tom. They didn't even have a chart or a compass or a map. All they had around them was a landscape of constantly shifting and drifting sand. Yet for 40 years, Israel had a single constant landmark, a faithful, accurate reference point, what page 62 in this book, or nautical types such as myself, like to call a single point fix. It is the safest and best possible kind of location, to be beside a known landmark in a place that is declared safe. You see, on the otherwise blank profile of the desert was a single and very clear sign. God did not give Moses some sort of map with one of those red arrows saying, you are here. He went one better than that. And with a pillar of cloud by day and of fire by night, he declared, I am here. Every step of the way, God was with Moses and those 600,000 men and an even greater number of women, children, and animals. They followed that pillar of cloud by day and of fire by night faithfully for 40 years, from the edge of the Red Sea all the way to the banks of the Jordan. And you know what? Even in the middle of that desert, where it was most barren, they had all they needed to navigate. They knew where they were, and they knew where they were going. Where he goes, they go. When he goes, they go. You see, at no point do we read that they were ever lost. So how did a trip that they could have completed in as little as 11 days, which saw them first reach the banks of the Jordan in a little over two years, take them 40 years? For that answer, we must remember the third and most important fundamental of navigation. You definitely need to know where the hazards are. So what was the hazard? Was it sunburn? Heat stroke, some dangerous ravine, was it flies or snakes or scorpions? Was it some sort of dust storm? None of these are mentioned. But the hazard that God identifies again and again and again as they stumble and grumble in the desert is something to do with their necks. Not the sort of red sunburnt neck you might get on holiday in Ibiza, but a stiff neck. Over and over again, God despairs of Israel's stiff neck at Sinai, on the banks of the Jordan. It is because of their necks that their journey, instead of a month, takes them 40 years. You see, at the time of Exodus, a plough was two oxen controlled by one ploughman. He needed one hand to operate the blade of the plough, and with the other he would goad, it was called an ox goad, with a, with a short stick with a spike on the end. If you wanted the plough to go faster, you tapped the hindquarters of the ox. If you needed to turn, you tapped the neck. Or if it didn't turn immediately, you would poke and spike the neck of the ox. If the ox was hard to control or stubborn, it was said to be hard of neck or stiff-necked. God says time and again that his people are stiff-necked, hard to control, stubborn people. Just after the giving of the Ten Commandments, while they're still camped, 
beneath Mount Sinai. Moses is called again up the mountain, this time for 40 days, during which he receives detailed instructions regarding the tabernacle, the courtyard, the ephod, the breastplate of judgment for him to wear, the candlesticks, the oil for the candlesticks, oil and incense, the priestly garments, cuddly toy, fondue set... um, did I say the ephod? I said the ephod. There's lots of it. It fills everything from Exodus 24 to 31. It's rich in meeting, and I guess it's beautiful, but it's really rather dull. It probably takes only a few minutes to read it all. I wouldn't know, because I got bored and started speed reading, and then eventually flicked right through chapter 28, 29, and 30. And do you know that's okay, because the people of Israel were even less patient. Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Within just a few days of receiving the Ten Commandments, they have broken the first two. To be honest, I've always been a bit surprised and disappointed by the order of the Ten Commandments. I mean, if I was writing it, it would be much better and much simpler. You would obviously start with murder, which is actually number six. And then maybe something even more tempting, more likely to happen, like theft, which is only number eight. But God is clear. The stiff-necked Israelites prove time and time again in the desert that the biggest hazard by far that we all face on our desert journey is idolatry. The dictionary defines idolatry as the worship of, excessive devotion to, or reverence of some person or thing. We often wrongly assume that idolatry is confined to the history of the Old Testament, to tribal customs or trinkets of New Age spirituality. But an idol is just anything that replaces the one true God. Calvin said that our hearts are idol factories. You see, we're designed to be religious We're natural worshippers. We will always live our lives orbiting around some ultimate thing. If you are human, and most of you here are, you will have a God or gods that your fear, your trust, your love and your life is controlled by. Your idol might be as modern as a mobile phone or as old as sex. It might be as empty as fame or as full as your busy schedule. It might be as cheap as money or as expensive as a life wasted in the pursuit of it. You can find idols at home or at work, on TV, in your hobbies, or even when you're on holiday. The Israelites even managed to make their own idols in the desert. God put the first commandment first Because sin isn't only about doing bad things. It is more fundamentally about making a bad or even a very good thing into an ultimate thing. Sin is building your life and its meaning on anything other than God. Because whatever you build your life on doesn't just drive you, it ultimately enslaves you. The first commandment is first because sin is primarily idolatry. It drives our addictions, our anxieties, our obsessiveness, our envy, our resentment. It makes us stiff-necked, hard-hearted people. 
Whenever we lose sight of the cloud, just like the Israelites, we will follow just about anything. From Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments start with the Lord declaring, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. I like the way he drops that in. When we come to God and we pray, perhaps we should remember that he is the Lord our God who rescued us from slavery. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You know, that God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Idols blind us from the God who saved us, from the God who longs to tempt us, to woo us, to seduce us into that desert place and meet him there. Idols make God jealous because the worth and worship that we afford to them belongs to him. Jealousy has two meanings, either some sort of all-consuming desire for something that we want to acquire, or a zealous protection, a jealous guarding of something we own. For example, if I'm jealous of my neighbor's shiny new Mercedes, then I've broken the Tenth Commandment. I'm coveting, I'm jealously desiring something. It's an unhealthy desire and appetite. But if I try to steal their car, then we might expect them to jealously guard, to zealously protect what is, after all, their property. It's only reasonable because the car belongs to them. You see, when you and I give worth and worship to idols, we are in fact trading in stolen goods. All worth and worship belongs to God, and he guards it every bit as jealously as my neighbor might his car. Or that husband in Hosea 2, jealous to win back the affections of his wife caught in adultery. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers, but me she forgot, jealously declares the Lord. It is jealously that God leads Israel, me and you, into the desert. Away from our idols and back into his arms. Rabindranath Tagore sums up this role of the desert perfectly. The desert is a place where your idol is shattered into the dust to prove that God's dust is greater than your idol. A place where your idol is shattered in the dust to prove that even God's dust is greater than your idol. So this Valentine's Day, would you remember that if the desert is the best place to go on a date, it doesn't seem to be so much about the money that you spend as the time spent. Not so much about the place that you go, but the person that you meet with there. It's about attention given and tender conversation shared. I hope you will talk for hours and share your innermost thoughts of the day, your fears and hopes and dreams for the future. Open your heart tenderly as you do it. For it's in these moments of shared laughter and tears, whispered conversation or silent togetherness that real, lasting relationships grow. Let that be a model for our prayers. For God has a longing to speak tenderly with us and a jealousy for that same intimacy with us. This Lent season, instead of giving up chocolate or crisps or 
or beer or coffee? Would you search your heart for idols? What better gift could we give a new minister than an idol-free, loose-necked church, easily led? This Lent, just four days after Valentine's Day, search your heart for idols and surrender those to God. Know that all worth and worship comes from him, for, from him and belongs to him. Let his praise be forever on our lips. Let him lead you faithfully into the desert. Meet with him and speak tenderly with him there. Just as in the desert Israel fixed their eyes on the pillar of cloud every morning and fire every evening, so we fix our eyes on Jesus. When he goes, we go. Where he goes, I will go. Put no other God before him, that our necks may be open to his guiding touch, that God may lead us, a nation of sinners and slaves, safely home.